Hear our lesson from the epistle tonight. It comes from Titus. Hear the word of the Lord beginning with Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age, to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, tonight we are grateful for all that you do for us, and we are grateful for your word. For the words of the prophet Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. For the words of the psalmist, for the words of the evangelist Luke, and for the words recorded in the book of Titus in the New Testament. Lord, as we celebrate the incarnation, you becoming one of us, as we celebrate the Christ child being born into the world, may our hearts hear the word that you would share with us tonight. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen and amen. There is more than one New Testament scripture reading for Christmas Eve, and we almost always focus on Luke chapter 2 for obvious reasons. Luke chapter 2 is the chapter in the New Testament that is so beautifully communicating the birth of Jesus, that is so beautifully reminding us of the angel's announcement of the shepherd's surprise, of the choirs that are singing in the heavens. We know a lot about about the Gospel of Luke, and we know a lot about the birth of Jesus because of the detailed records that the evangelist Luke preserves and gives to us. But Titus, these words in the book of Titus remind us that the coming of Jesus is really preparing us to be in training to be men and women who are sold out wholeheartedly. To God. Now, we know Luke chapter 2. We know that there were arguments about taxes back then just as they are now. And Caesar decreed that all the world should be taxed. Big deal. There were taxes ever since records were written before. And for the rest of humanity, there will always be taxes. Taxes on garbage, taxes on work, taxes on profits, taxes on food. There's travel. Have you ever noticed how much travel there is in the Gospel of Luke? Mary finds out that Elizabeth has uh, become pregnant in her old age, and so Mary travels from way up here in Nazareth down to near uh, Jerusalem to see Elizabeth, and she and Elizabeth have their beautiful time together talking about the miraculous things that God is doing. And Mary travels back up, and then Caesar Augustus issues the decree that all the world should be taxed, and she's got to make that trip again past Jerusalem back down to Bethlehem which is six-ish miles away from 
Jerusalem, and there they are once again, and it's time to give birth. A lot of you know what it's like to be in the hospital, but it's a really terrible thing if you are away from your own doctors, if you are away from your own friends, if you are traveling 700 or 1,000 miles away and suddenly have to be hospitalized when you don't know anything about where you are except that you are in the hospital badly needing care. I was in Israel one time, and uh, one of one of the couples that was traveling with me ended up in a hospital in Galilee. And every now and then I was able to get away from our tour group and go and see them and thank God for someone who speaks English, they said. Travel, time to give birth. There it is. They're in a place that's far from home. And then suddenly there are these throngs of angels, these angels that break out in song. Glory, Gloria, Gloria in excelsis. Glory to God in the highest. And we recognize the people and the places in this story. We've got Mary and Joseph and the parts that they play. We have the inn, and the inn has no vacancy. And when there's no vacancy in the inn, our imaginations go wild about the innkeeper. Different things you'll read about the innkeeper, different takes that people have about the innkeeper. Some of them present the innkeeper as this curmudgeon who just won't make room. Some present the innkeeper as this rather affectionate character who who can't give up any other space except for what he has in the stable. And we think of the stable in terms of of a wooden stable, something like a barn. But if you go to Bethlehem today and you look for the stable, you won't find it. What you will find is many caves in the hillsides there in Bethlehem. And in and around those caves, there are shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. We know the stories of the shepherds with their sheep. We learn about the swaddling clothes and the manger and then these two strange characters that Luke brings to us. These characters that have been situated in and around the temple for so long, just waiting, waiting for something to happen, waiting, waiting for the Messiah to come. And Simeon and Anna, when Jesus is brought to the temple, they grasp this infant child. And Simeon says, Lord, now your servant can go in peace, for my eyes have beheld your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all peoples a light for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Anna likewise has this wonderful reaction for someone that she has waited so long to see. But the question for us tonight is, how does the rest of the New Testament reflect on these events at Bethlehem? What does it mean for Paul as he is writing, to to talk about, to think about what the coming of Jesus means. And that's where we get to our scripture from Titus tonight. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Now, listen carefully. The appearance of Jesus into our world reveals God's grace to the world clearly, directly, and personally. When God wants to communicate grace to the world, there are many ways God could have done it 
writing in the sky. He has done so over and over again in the sacred words of Scripture. But when he wants to communicate grace directly and clearly and personally, he comes in the form of a child. And that child grows in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and with people. And that child wanders the shores of the Sea of Galilee and up and down the Jordan River region and that child teaches and preaches the grace of God. The appearance of Jesus reminds us exactly of what, of what is being said here. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. Now, what does grace mean? And it's very, in its very essence, these are synonyms of grace. There's no real way to define grace in a, in a way that is comprehensive. And this doesn't come close, but it's not a bad shot. Grace involves mercy. Grace involves covenant love and compassion and kindness and favor and goodwill. And we would not know that God is a gracious God if God had not revealed himself to us. We would not know that God is a gracious God if God had not revealed himself to us in mercy, in covenant love, in compassion, in kindness and favor and goodwill. And so for you and for me, as we stand in this revelation of God, as we stand recognizing what God has done for us, we ask, when I approach God, what kind of God is it that I am envisioning myself approaching? There may be any number of images we have of God, any number of visions we have of God. Some think of God in terms of what an astronaut would see looking over the world from the window of a spacecraft. You see that there's light that can be seen from outer space. You see a, a great deal of water, a bit of land. You can sort of see the atmosphere's edge as the sunlight is piercing through it. Bette Midler had a song that if you're my age, you remember, God is watching us from a distance. The deists who have been around for a very, very long time think of God in this way. That God sort of set the top of the world spinning and walked away and doesn't much care what's going on. On any given continent, in any given sea, or in any given person's life. If God is watching us from a distance then our prayers are far from personal. And we wonder if there is anyone who is listening to our prayers. Another image of God may be the image of the potter. It's a good biblical image. God wants to make something, and if you and I yield to the influence of God in our lives, God will remake us. This is not a bad image of God. Like I said, it's a thoroughly biblical image of God where God is creating and fashioning us to be people who love Him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strengths. And every, 
every part of who we are is somehow being submitted to God so that God can and will work in us and through us. And so as we pray, maybe we are praying to God who is like the potter, to God who is, who is fashioning us in one way or another. Some people think of God as a warrior. This is also a biblical image. If you want to get in a fight, you don't want to get in a fight with God. God is the ultimate power in the universe beyond whom and beyond which there is no other. If God is for me, who can be against me? God's might, God's authority, God's power. These are, in fact, attributes of God. Sometimes we're tempted to think of God as king, and this is another royal metaphor. It's a metaphor that's found in the Bible. It's another very biblical metaphor. God is king. There is no one more powerful. There is no one whose law we must listen to more than that of the one who has created us, who has saved us, and who wants to make us new and whole and full. But the problem with a king or a queen is you don't really have a whole lot of personal access to them. I I just think of myself going up to Buckingham Palace. I'm here to see the queen. Good luck with that, I would be told very quickly. There is just all sorts of different layers between the ordinary person and and the king. And even though God in the Bible is presented over and over again as the king of the universe, if we think of God as only king, he is sometimes in unapproachable splendor. Hard to get to know, hard to get to see. Some think of God as a judge with a gavel just waiting to declare order in the court, order in the court, and staring at us with piercing eyes that know everything we have ever done and when we did it and how it has affected our characters and our lives. We tend to think of God as judge, and that's, that's also a biblical image of God. God is judge. We say in the Apostles' Creed, he has come to judge, or he will come to judge the living and the dead. Although, as I often make the point, judgment in the Bible is not nearly so fearsome an idea as it usually is in our own culture. In our own culture, I, just, I would prefer to stay out of court myself. I would prefer just to, you know, let the court system do its thing and let me do my thing outside of it. Once you get stuck in the court system again and again, but if you are someone who has been wronged, if you are someone who has been treated unfairly, the idea of judgment is not a bad idea. The idea of judgment is that the judge will see that I have been wronged and will set that which is wrong right again. And so there is this biblical image of God as judge. There is also this biblical image of God as shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. In the gospel, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. 
The image of the shepherd is a good image. The shepherd leads the sheep. They choose to follow him. They trust. They trust that the shepherd looks out for their interests. They trust that where the shepherd is, they will be safe. They will be secure. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Again, grace and mercy and covenant love and compassion and kindness and and favor and goodwill, these these are all images that the Bible gives to us when it speaks of the grace of God. And it gives us these images in order to elicit from us a response. Whatever your image of God is, be sure your image of God is compatible with grace. If God is a judge, God is a gracious judge. If God is a king, God is a merciful king engaged in covenant love. If God is a shepherd, God is the shepherd who has goodwill for his sheep. God's relationship with us is personal and real and calls for our response. Our response is also spoken of in Titus chapter 2. Again, for the grace of God has appeared in this manger in Bethlehem. The grace of God has appeared in this baby called Jesus. This grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all nations and languages and peoples, not because we deserve it, not because we love it, but not because we love heavily enough or, or, or deeply enough, but God's grace comes because God is gracious. But hear the remainder of that passage once again. This grace comes training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions and in this present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. And so in response to the manger scene, in response to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we start this training. This training to love God. Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And he says, love God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us have been at this for quite a while and we still feel like we're just starting in our training of loving God and loving others. We feel like we ought to be farther along than we are. We feel like the grace of God has come to us and we need to take another step. And you're here tonight on Christmas Eve taking another step. 
We're called to renounce impiety and worldly passions. The world would have us live in all kinds of different ways and do all kinds of different things, but we are called in our baptismal vows to renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our sin. Have you rejected the evil powers of this world? Have you repented of your sins? And we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. For some of us, we can chart our progress over years, over decades, over a lifetime. It's one thing I like about uh, the objective data that you can get from uh, physical therapy, for example. Can you do what you want to do? Zero? No, I can't. Five? Yes, I can. You do that every couple of months, and you can, you can chart your improvement. Some of us can chart our improvement in the spiritual realm. Or we can chart our movement in the opposite direction. Do we want to pray? Do we get joy in communicating with the God who understands our sequence of DNA? Do we want to know at least, at least in part as much as we can know even one one-hundredth of what God knows about us? Do we want to see and understand the gracious character of our God? Here we are Remembering the nativity. Here we are recalling the birth of Jesus into our world. Here we are at this event that if historians had just calculated correctly would have been somewhere between 0 and 1. Or between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. There is no 0. But they got it a little wrong, so... The scene takes place somewhere between 7 B.C. and and, and 4 B.C. And here we are tonight remembering that. And here we are recognizing that in this child that is born to us, God reveals himself. However, you see God when you pray, if you don't see God with some aspect of grace and mercy and covenant love and compassion and kindness and favor and goodwill, then at best, you have a misunderstanding of God and at worst, you have not yet seen His glory. He is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and His favor and His mercy and His goodness and compassion and kindness and covenant love. These are, in fact, the attributes of the one to whom we pray. And these are, in fact, the attributes of the one who gives himself to us in the sacrament that we will receive tonight.